Hey, Islanders, and welcome to episode 62 of the Command of Voice. Today, I speak with a, a retired colonel in the Air Force, as well as an author. Please welcome Colonel Tracy Mack. Hi, I'm Brandon Erickson, and you're listening to the Camino Voice podcast, where I interview folks around Camino Island and beyond. If you want to stay up to date on events, businesses, and even hear a little history of this area, subscribe to this podcast and share with your friends. Thanks for listening. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Camino Voice, where we release a new episode every Tuesday. So I got to speak with Colonel Tracy Mech on today's episode and she's also an author so she's a retired colonel from the air force as well as an author um the book she wrote is called uh i should know this see you along the way um and it's a book about her journey of walking the camino de santiago um which is a a pilgrimage that many people take over in well it's, it, it goes through quite a few european countries but anyways we we get into all of that as well and um but we hear about her time in the Air Force and what she did and, and how she kind of, why she decided to get in the Air Force in the first place. So anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Colonel Tracy Meck. Hey Islanders and welcome to another episode of the Command of Voice. Today I'm here with a retired colonel from the Air Force as well as an author. Welcome to the podcast, Colonel Tracy Meck. Hello, glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining me. So before we get started with everything, tell us a little bit about Tracy. All right. Well, um, I was born in Montana and raised in Alaska. And uh, after graduating from high school up there, uh, I was uh, lucky enough to get a nomination from my congressman and then, of course, a appointment to the Air Force Academy. And I graduated from there with my commission in 1987. And then I went into um, the Air Force as a security police officer and later that changed to security forces. Um, I did that most of my career until I deployed to uh, Afghanistan as a provincial reconstruction team commander. And um, after that deployment, I went back and forth between security forces and what we call stability operations, which is what we were doing on the PRT, um, which is nation building, you know, we were building schools, clinics, uh, water systems, electric systems helping mentor government officials and that kind of thing. Um, and then after that deployment, I went back and forth at, at the CENTCOM headquarters level and at the Pentagon uh, and eventually deployed to Iraq and uh, Djibouti, Africa. And then I retired in 2012, and I uh, bought a nice log home on Camino Island, uh, mainly because a lot of my family had moved down into this area. Okay. And um, not on Camino, but... <clears throat> Within driving distance. Yeah. And, um, so I've been here since 2012, and now I'm kind of a professional volunteer. I mean, I've, I've written the book, um, but uh, it's hard to sell a book, so that's, that's not a full-time job. <laughs> uh, what I do do is uh, volunteer at the church and uh, with the Air Force Academy okay. as uh, an admissions liaison officer. So I work with the local high schools nice. uh, and the students and counselors and their parents on, on uh, when they're interested in attending the, high, the Air Force Academy, and then I help them through the application process. Nice. Very cool. So you said you, you started in Montana. How long did you live there? Until uh, about what age? 
Well, besides a year and a half where we lived over in Minnesota, um, I lived there until halfway through my fifth grade year. So okay. 1976, we moved to Alaska. So I did um, junior high and high school there. Nice. And then I maintained my Alaska residency all through my military career. Okay. One of the saddest days of my life was to give up that Alaska driver's license and my <laughs> my uh, plates on my car and get the Washington one. But, oh. well, here we are. Yeah. <laughs> it was just always kind of neat to be from Alaska, you know. Yeah. <laughs> That's very cool. So when you moved to Alaska, was that a big change for you from Montana? They're both kind of outdoorsy, but, like, yeah. it's and both, different. They both get cold. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, Alaska is more of a frontier area, even though we were in Anchorage, which is by far the biggest city. Mm -hmm. I think at the time it had about 200,000 people. Um, I'm not sure it's that much bigger now. Uh, I haven't checked lately. Um, So it was, but I've always been from a small town, so that wasn't um, a big issue. But it was more of a frontier type of an atmosphere instead of middle America atmosphere. So it was different, but it was a great lifestyle. And I I always expected to go back there, but things changed and and I didn't end up going back there. And now with some of my arthritis and other issues with cold, cold injuries from Afghanistan and stuff, I just, I I don't think I could live there with the cold. I can go up in the summer, but my body would not except the cold yeah. anymore. In fact, now I go to Arizona for three months out of the okay out of the winter. I'm a snowbird. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What part of Arizona? Um, Gold Canyon. It's on the east side of um, Phoenix area. So okay. it goes. It goes. Um, what is it? Mesa, Apache Junction, Gold Canyon, the desert. <laughs> okay, got it. Yeah, my uh, we moved up here from Tucson, Arizona, when I was about five years old. So, oh, okay. Yeah, and then so we made a lot of trips back and forth. Uh, Arizona, so very cool. So, um, so you went, you were in Alaska. What kind of got you interested in military in general? Well, it started out as more of a desire to be an astronaut. Mm. Uh, you know, I was only a few years old when I watched the landing on the moon on TV, yeah. and I've always been interested in science fiction, and I, I wanted to be an astronaut. And of course, watching the challenge or the uh, the space shuttle program and everything. Um, so I grew up with all of that. Um, so that was the main reason I went to the academy because I w- read the book, The Right Stuff. Yeah. And kind of occurred to me that the best way to become an af- astronaut, at least at that time, would be as a military officer, pilot, test pilot, that type of thing. Okay. So I went to the academy uh, with that in mind and uh, didn't do quite so well in physics. I did straight A's, easy, easy A's in high school in physics. And yeah. I got there as a physics major in order to be an astronaut was my thought. And I was really happy to get a C out of the class. So I thought, started thinking, well, maybe this isn't going to work out quite as well as I had hoped. And at the same time, I was getting A's, easy A's in my law and political science classes. Yeah. And I really enjoyed it. You know, if I had homework in both, I would tend to do the law and political science homework instead of the physics because yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, so eventually I changed my major to political science, or, or officially it was called international affairs with a, a focus on national security. Okay. So we really don't need that in space. So my, <laughs> And then the other thing that happened was uh, I got a, a 
orientation flight on a jet, mm-hmm. and I didn't like it so much. Yeah. And I decided that I really didn't want to be a jet pilot. Yeah. Um, so I switched my major, switched my career aspirations, decided to be security forces or security police is what it was called at the mm-hmm. time. Um, so now what I'm doing is I'm waiting for the moon base to be established because once it is and it's populated, then I can be the chief of police up there. There you go. So I can merge the two things together. Right. <laughs> Just reach out to Elon. I, he's working on that. Okay, yeah, I should. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. So um, just because within the military, there's obviously there's a lot of different ranks and different job titles and stuff. And um, at least for me, I get a little confused with how they all work. So what what's kind of the role of the security police in within the military? OK, uh, what we do is law enforcement. So we go on patrol mm-hmm. on the base because, believe it or not, it's like a small city on a base and people speed. People get in domestic disputes. Okay. They get, fights. they get in fights at the club. Sometimes there's even shoplifting. Uh, so we do have um, police that do that. Then the other half of the job uh, is security. Mm-hmm. And so we protect the priority resources. Okay. Um, and then another part of it is, especially after 9-11, it became the forefront, is what we call anti-terrorism. Okay. So the under combating terrorism, there's two sections. The counter-terrorism is more of the offensive stuff. You know, the special forces guys going after the terrorists. Mm-hmm. The anti-terrorism is more defensive. Okay. So we build up the defenses of the base. Okay. And our goal was always to make our base look the hardest you know, the the most protected, so they'd go bug somebody else. <laughs> uh, but then part of that would be, you know, convoy security. Uh, in the war zone, we did convoy security, base security, um, and patrolling outside of the area around the bases to make sure that our planes could take off and land without getting, you know, surface-to-air missiles shot at them. Yeah. Or if somebody was shooting mortars at the base, we could go out and see if we could find whoever it was that was shooting at us. So, you know, we our area responsibility for patrolling was out to the limit of of the uh, weapons that were being fired against us. Okay. Oh, wow. You know, and then after yeah. that, the Army did the area patrols, but we, we secured the base itself. Got it. Okay. Um, so... When you were you were in security police on base in Alaska, right? No, no, I was never stationed in Alaska. Oh, so okay. that was just you know the last part of my elementary, junior high, and high school years. Got it. Okay, I put in for Alaska a lot, but I never got it. Got it. You know, I put in for Alaska. They sent me to Texas and Honduras and Florida and you know all these hot places. Else. <laughs> Arizona. Yep. So then, um, when was it that you started like? Where you were assigned to actually go overseas um, with the with everything else that was going on? Well, I I did a lot of uh, overseas tours assignments mm-hmm. before the deployments. So okay. I was stationed in my first place was in Sicily at Camiso Air ba- or Air Station in Sicily, uh, and then I was at Hahn Air Base in Germany, and then I came back statesides a little bit, um, and then I was in Turkey. At uh, Diabaco, um, it was called Prince Air Station. Um, 
and then I had a tour in England uh, and Honduras. I think that covers my assignments. Okay. And then I had several deployments uh, from England. We did a um, refugee support operation. We were supporting the um, Kosovo refugees that were in Albania during the Kosovo War back in 1999. Okay. And then the following year, well, we, I was at the headquarters then, so I was actually in Germany, but the operation was happening down in um, Albania. Okay. And then the following year, we picked up and moved the whole headquarters down to um, South Africa and did a flood relief operation for a five-country area in southern Africa. Okay. Um, and then I had my first deployment to Afghanistan was in 2005, where I was the deputy support group commander for the Air Force camp at Bagram Air Base. Uh, and then the year after that, I went back as the provincial reconstruction team commander for Gardez, uh, which is south of Kabul. And we, we my... Uh, PRT had two provinces, Paktia and Logar provinces, where okay. we were doing all the reconstruction development and governance capacity building and a little bit with the security force development in that area. Okay. And then um, after CENTCOM in, Feb in uh, Florida and the Pentagon, uh, then I got, because I'm such an expert on Afghanistan, they went ahead and sent me to Iraq. Okay. But that only lasted about three months. And then... Um, the State Department was taking over the police development mission there, uh, so they were phasing out my unit that I was assigned to, and I ended up getting forward deployed to Djibouti in um, the Horn of Africa. Really? And okay. I did six months down there and then came back and retired from the Pentagon. So I was at the Pentagon for like four years, but so much of it was away from it that yeah. <laughs> it, it was kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, we, we have some missionary friends that were... Um, uh, they were missionaries in Djibouti for many years. Oh, okay. Um, I think they owned a uh, bookstore there, and, and yeah, but like it's, they were talking about how hot it gets there. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> so, um, so what was it like being over in Iraq and Afghanistan during that time? Was it, were like, by the time you got there, were it still like kind of red alert, or was it calmed down a little bit? Um. Well, the first time, believe it or not, the first time I went to Afghanistan, the violence level was quite low. When I went back a year later, it had totally changed, and there was a lot more IEDs and mortars going off on bases, you know. Okay. And so it had increased, not decreased, between, wow. you know, 2001, two time frame, you know, that was hot. Then things kind of settled down, and... Things were going okay when I was there in, in five, and then, but then they really, really cranked up the violence after that. Yeah. Um, so it was still pretty violent while I, while I was there. Um, I did not get into any firefights, and I'm okay with that. Yep. <laughs> I did not earn a Purple Heart, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> I don't, you know, I got a Bronze Star, but it's not for valor, and I'm okay with that because I was never in a situation where I, where I had to do that. Yeah. Um, or prove myself in that way, and I guess that's okay. But my team did get attacked a couple of times. I just wasn't with them um, 
doing those missions. Okay. I didn't go on every mission with the team. I just went on the ones that the commander needed to be on. Yeah. There was a lot of lower-level detailed coordination that, that happened without my personal touch. Yeah. Um, as as was with those two that, yeah. that ended up getting attacked. But we didn't lose anybody. We had some injuries, but we didn't have any deaths. So that was... Good. That was a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that um, I've read a, there was a book by uh, Jocko Willink and he was a uh, Navy SEAL, I believe. And um, he talks about some of his stuff that he did in Iraq. And like during that whole time he was, and so they were on, you know, front lines and behind enemy lines and stuff. But just the decisions that you have to make when things are going on and like, whether or not people will survive with these decisions that you're making. And it just, uh, his, the book is called Extreme Leadership. And how you have to own up to every decision that you're making. Um, and he compares that, uh, he, he relates it to business and how that as a leader in a business, you every decision you make, everything that's going wrong with the business, that's your fault, right? And you've yeah. got to own up to that. Um, and so he, he's comparing it to his military experience. But yeah, that kind of that level of like understanding of knowing like each decision you make is very important because you're talking about lives that are on the line. Oh, absolutely. And you know, I knew it every day. I sent one or more convoys out, and we, you know, we did 450 convoys total in the um, one year that we were there. Mm-hmm. One day was there were six of them went out, and you know, any one of those could have been hit. Yeah. You know, and you know it. Mm-hmm. So you just have to focus on the mission. Right. And and you can't let yourself think about that. Oh, you're not going to be effective. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. But everybody knows it could happen. Yeah. Nice. So then, um, so while you were over there, and then when you were doing the rebuild and stuff, what was, were you doing like structural rebuild or was it like political rebuild? What was kind of the infrastructure rebuild stuff you were doing there? Well, we were doing, we could only do government type buildings. Okay. We couldn't build personal homes and stuff. Mm -hmm. We were there to support and build up the government. Uh, So schools clinics, um, government buildings for, like, courthouses mm-hmm. or offices for the governor, you know, that type of thing. What we could do, though, um, to help the economy is we were putting in, like, solar lights in the marketplace okay. so that they could continue the market in the evening because they didn't have electricity. Yeah. You know, or, like, in Gardez, we did have, we installed, with the help of USAID, a big generator that that powered about half of the city for four hours a day. Okay. But that was about all it could handle. Yeah. And then, of course, there was the big problem of the fuel and yeah. how that was going to be paid for. And you would not believe all the the complicated ins and outs of every project. And right. the training for the operators and the maintain who was going to maintain it, because we wanted it to be self-sufficient. We didn't want to have to maintain and operate it ourselves right so we tried to train them which worked out okay until that first group decided to go get different jobs or whatever and right they, who trained the replacements and where did they get the parts to replace yeah. it you know i mean these things are not so easy and right. you had to really think through them all and that was quite interesting yeah um where were we going with that i don't know <laughs> <laughs> but i i was trying to i was uh, asking about like how are you guys what type of rebuild level oh, yeah. you guys were doing right. so. and so we did do some hydroelectric projects um, so it was just things that would enable them to have 
a decent economy mm -hmm. and for governance capacity building you know you need you need knowledge but you also need the facilities to work with um, schools of course we built all over the place yeah. that was one of the biggest things was the schools because you're trying to invest in the next generation right, right. And were you guys, like, did you have um, a construction team side of the Army, or was the Army the ones doing the construction, or were no. you guys? Or? No, we had some civil engineers on the team. Okay. But they were more project development and management people. Mm -hmm. We, as part of it, was capacity building, so we would hire Afghan companies. Okay. And sometimes, they had to have, like, I think it was 80% Afghan employees, but then you allowed some other people to be in there, not not U.S. military, right. but people who had the expertise to teach the Afghans what they needed to do, because a yeah. lot of them didn't have the skills. The background or education. Right, or, so you yeah. had to have some experts as part of the company that you hired to make sure that it got done right. Now, what we did was we coordinated with the, the governor and the local shores and who usually owned the property, and we got the funding, mm -hmm. and then our civil engineers would put out a contract request for bidding, yep. and we'd have three, four, five companies, you know, bid on it, and then yeah. we would hire them. Then they would do the construction, we would fund it, and then we had a team that went out and did what we called quality assurance yes. checks. Yeah. And that was one of the ones that got hit. They had gone out to do a quality assurance check on one of the projects. And, of course, that's why I wasn't there. I'm not an engineer, so right. there was no reason for me to go and inspect, you know, yeah. uh, a project because I couldn't inspect it. I didn't know what I was looking at. Um, but they had been on the site for a while, and the bad guys had seen them go in. And it was one of those places where it's one road in and one road out. Oh, okay. And so while they were in there... They planted IEDs on the road to, to hit them on the way back out. Wow. Um, but that's what they were doing. And that's how we tried to make sure that the projects were done to at least a reasonable quality. Yeah. You know, what, what's quality over there? What's quality over here? Two totally different right. things. <laughs> right. But we needed it to be a viable project because if you, if you fund and promise the citizens a project, whether it's a clinic or a school or whatever, and you yeah. give them a piece of trash, right? then that looks bad not only on the U.S. military who funded it and U.S. aid and the U.S. Yeah. State Department, because we all work together on these things, but also on the Afghan government. And one of our biggest missions was to connect the Afghan people with their government yeah. and try and build trust between the two. Right. And, you know, if we did bad projects that were falling apart, then... Right. Everybody looked bad, and there was no trust. Right. You know, and nobody got any benefit either. So, right. So we had to make sure there was quality, but we did not do the construction itself. But through the construction, all those people that that company hired learned those skills. Yeah. So now they came out of that project with skills that they could take to other parts mm -hmm. of the country and other jobs. Right. Very cool. Um, okay, so I want to change gears a little bit. Um, and I want to talk about, you did the trek of uh, Camino de Santiago, um, but you said, I think in the, in the book, uh, in the summary something, it said you had done it, attempted it before you actually completed it. 
So how did that all come about? When did you first attempt it? And what kind of had brought you to that, like wanting to do that? Okay. Well, um, it started out early 2013. Believe it or not, my mom asked me if I would go. What what was going on was her friend, her name is Uria, um, wanted to do something special for her 80th birthday. And so she decided that she wanted to hike the Camino. And she asked my mom to go with her. And then my mom asked me. And then I decided, well, I need somebody a little closer to my age. So I asked my niece, which is kind of funny because I'm halfway between my niece and mom and Ria. But um, we ended up with the four of us heading over in 2013. Okay. Um, And then the bad part was... I talked the two older ladies into skipping the middle 200 miles because I had some serious problems with my feet and I was really struggling with them. Now, granted, my niece had already dropped out. She dropped out after the first the first week. Uh, she had some serious uh, tendon issues in her feet. Um, and then I was starting to have foot problems because of the circulation issues from the cold injuries from the war, plus the arthritis in the toes. Mm-hmm. And um, so I talked them into skipping. And when we get to the other, the other side of the 200 miles we skipped, the first thing we did was meet a 91-year-old who did the whole 500. <laughs> so now I'm feeling really guilty because I got this huge ego, you know, an Air Force colonel, (laughs) and I talked the 72 and 80-year-old into skipping 200 miles, and then we meet a (laughs) 91-year-old who did the whole thing. In fact, he had had slipped in the shower and fell, and they took him to the doctor, and by doing that, he missed one day of the hike. So when he got all the way completed, he took a bus back... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and we did that one section that he missed. So now I'm feeling really bad. Right? So I decided uh, I had to go back in um, 2015 and do it and do it right. Now, some people say, well, just go do the 200 you skip. But no, that's not good enough. <laughs> I've gone 300. What's the big deal about doing 200? Mm-hmm. So I have to start all the way back at the beginning and go all the way to the end and do it right. So that's what I did in 2015. Now, I was not able to convince my mom, Ria, or my niece uh, to go with me. So I did it alone the second time. But you're never really alone because mm-hmm. there's so many other people doing it. You form a Camino family, if you will. Yeah. Uh, as you meet people who go about the same distance, stay in the same type of places at night that you do. and. You develop these friendships, and so there's always people around, so you're never really alone. So where does it start? Like, uh, when I was looking it up online, I was seeing, like, there's all these different paths, or maybe not paths, but there's there's this network. So where do you typically start and end if you're doing that full walk? Right. Well, you know, the history of the Camino started with people going on a pilgrimage to Santiago because that's where the apostle... James is encrypted underneath the altar there. Okay. After he was martyred mm-hmm. in Jerusalem, his, or Rome, I don't remember which, but anyway, his followers brought him back to Santiago because that's where his missionary area was. Okay. Uh, and they built a 
a cathedral around it. So, you know, a thousand years ago, people would start in Moscow, Paris, Geneva, you know, anywhere in Europe to walk on foot to Santiago for a pilgrimage because before there were trains and planes, you know, you couldn't go to Jerusalem right. from Europe. So they would go to Santiago. So that's how it all started, and that's why you've got all these Caminos starting in all these different directions and all ending in Santiago. The one that is most popular starts at St. Jean Pied de Port in southern France. Okay. And the first day you go over the Pyrenees into northern Spain, and then from the rest of that time, you know, you go across northern Spain through Pamplona, um, Lagrono, uh, Leon, Astroga, you know, and finally into. Santiago. Okay. So that's the most popular, and I think it's most popular, well, I'm sure it was popular beforehand, but the movie The Way with Martin Sheen and Emilio Estevez, okay. that's the route that they took. Got it. And that introduced it to America. Yep. And before then, I don't know that many people in America did it because they didn't know about it. But yeah. once that movie came out, everybody was over there, and they all did the same thing they did in the movie. Yeah. Start at St. John <laughs> and, and go to Santiago. Now, in the movie, they kept going past Santiago to the end of the earth on the on the coast. Okay. Um, we did not do that extra 50 mile. We, we stopped at Santiago and took the bus yeah. to the end of the earth. Because <laughs> it was pouring down rain, and the whole five days it would have taken us to do that walk, it was scheduled to be pouring down rain, and we decided... <laughs> not worth it. No, not worth it. Yep. We got to Santiago. We're good. Yep. <laughs> so, typically, how long does the the entire walk take, then? That's, I mean, that's If you go by the guidebook, which is updated every year by a guy named John Briley out of um, England, mm -hmm. he, he does the walk twice a year and updates the, the book once a year. If you go by that, he has it broken down into 33 stages. And okay. a lot of people will follow that. You don't have to. You can. I've found people that were doing it in 45 or 60 days. Uh, we found a guy who was doing 40 kilometers a day. And wow. know, we started with him in 2013. We met him at the restaurant okay. in St. John the night before we started. Wow. He, he interpreted for us at the restaurant because my niece and I were trying to figure out what to order, and the whole thing was in French, and we didn't have a clue. <laughs> so he helped us out, and then the next day we walked with him. We, we saw him a lot at the, the first stop, and then the second day he said, you know, I, I got I to gotta move on. And the next time we saw him, now remember, we skipped 200 miles. The next time we saw him was the night before we entered Santiago. He was, he was at the hostel we were at the night before. So he did wow. 500 in the time it took us to do 300. So you've got all sorts of people doing it at different, different paces. Now, okay. in 2013, we followed the, the stages. Okay. The second time, I, I decided that it didn't matter how long it was going to take me, I was going to finish it. And so I took half days. If my feet were hurting too bad, you know, I would stop. Yeah. If I was feeling good, I'd go a little extra. And the other reason I didn't want to go by the stages is with everybody stopping at the stage end. Yeah. It's very crowded. Yeah. In that in that village or at those hostels. So I I was part of the I hate big cities 
Camino family, and we would stop in villages in between. Okay. And small little areas, and, and that was the Camino family that I was able to connect with because yeah. they didn't like big cities yeah. and big crowded hostels either. So Right. So then along the way, are you kind of staying in a mixture of hostels and then camping as well? Oh, no, we didn't do any camping. Okay. Uh, um, one of my big issues um, from the military is a bad back. Mm. And in order to do camping, you would need a 30, 40, 45-pound pack. Right. We, on the Camino, because you stay in hostels and bed and breakfast, hotels, that type of a thing, you can get your pack under 20 pounds. Okay. And that made That's it doable. That's what I was doable. wondering, too. Yeah, yeah. That made it doable for me. Yeah. There's no way I could have done it with a heavier pack. Um, so th- there's many different types of hostels. Some of them, the municipal hostels, uh, you get to stay with 100 of your closest new friends. or But they're cheap. They're five euros a night. Wow. You know. Nice. But... Or you can stay at somewhere you can get smaller rooms where you might have 10 or 20 people, or I found some with rooms with just six people in it. Every once in a while, I treated, we treated ourselves to um, a Casa Royale, which is like a bed and breakfast, so you might have your own room there. Okay. Once a week, a hotel, so you could have a shower yeah. with sheets and real pillows <laughs> and towels, towels for the yeah. shower instead of a little chamois camp, yep. camp thing, you know? Yeah. Because, you know, you wouldn't go bare bones on what you carry. So right. you don't carry a big ta- shower towel. You right. carry a little camp towel type of a thing. Yeah. And are you usually carrying... Um, like you're saying, you you don't have to carry all your food that you're going to be eating, but do you carry a little bit as you're going? Or for the most part, are there enough stops along the way that you can... You hit villages every three to four kilometers for oh, the most okay. part. There was a couple of times where there might be eight to ten kilometers. So you might buy a snack. Yeah. Or, or you know, you have a sandwich for breakfast and pack half of it and leave the other... Or yeah. eat half and pack the other right. half for a stop at lunch. Um, water was... You just want to make sure you had enough water in one day. I didn't plan well enough for that. Um, but yeah. normally you could just take a bottle of water and refill it in every village. Okay. And I started doing that because I had I had a camelback inside of my backpack, yeah. which I started filling, you know, so two liters. But I figured out that I could cut several pounds yes. off of my pack <laughs> by taking a little, you know, half liter bottle of water and just refilling it. Uh, at each village, right. and that's what I ended up doing because I needed to ease the pressure on the back yeah, and the feet, ultimately. Right. You know, heavy packs also hurt the feet. <laughs> Very cool. So um, so upon finishing that then, what kind of prompted you to write the, uh, write the book? Which, uh, for those who don't know, what's the name of your book? Uh, the book is called See You Along the Way. So it's a, a play on the Camino de Santiago in English means The Way of St. James. Mm-hmm. And so The Way is the name of the movie with Martin Sheen. Um, so it's See You Along the Way, The Way being a journey. So the Camino is a journey, but also my life journey, my military journey. So it's all kind of mixed into the the phrase, the way. Um, so it's See You Along the Way with the subtitle, Reflections of a Veteran Hi- Hiking the Camino de Santiago. Um, and I, I got the idea to write the book because as I was volunteering at his pantry at Camino Chapel and other places in my hiking group and people would ask me questions about my military career, they... Um, 
said, I, you know, you ought to write a book about this. And so I decided that the Camino would be a good structure to write it about. So that would broaden the audience, too. So now yeah. you're, you're looking at an audience that might be interested in hiking the Camino, and then somebody who might want to know about the military, you know, modern military careers and the war on terrorism and everything. And I could put it all together in one book. So each chapter in the book is a day on the trail in 2015. Okay. It took me 35 days to do it in 2015, plus the three days travel to get there kind of sets it up. So there's 38 chapters in the book. Um, And while I'm hiking, I'm either talking to people and I about my military career or things I did since the military, or if I'm not ta- talking to anybody, then I'm reflecting chronologically through my career. Okay. So I've mixed the two together. Yeah. You, you got to be careful. You go back and forth between the trail, the military career, today, you know, yes. 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the way we transition, people tell me it, it's easy to keep track. Yeah. Very cool. And how long did it take you to write the book from when you decided to write it to when it was published? Well, I initially thought about writing it in 2013 when we were on the trail. Okay. But then when we skipped 200 miles, I decided nobody would want to buy a book about failure. So that went on hold for a couple <laughs> of years. And so I, I actually went back intending to write the book uh, when I went back uh, okay. in 2015. So I was able to to keep notes along the way yeah. so that when I got back to write the book, I didn't have to remember everything. Right, I had right. notes from every day on the trail to, yeah. to help focus me on what, what to write. Um, and it took about two years to actually write. I was surprised. I figured I could write a chapter a day. <laughs> I experienced it in a day, so you could write it in a day. Well, no, it oh. took more like... A week to two weeks per chapter, Yeah, you know, so it, it took way longer than I thought. And then I had to get it um, cleared by the Pentagon, so that took several oh, right. months. Because, you know, I'm talking about so much military stuff in here. Right. Uh, it's not that they censor what we put out. They just needed to go through it and make sure there wasn't any classified information. Right. That's all they were really looking for. Yep. So they had it for almost three months and sent me a one-paragraph letter saying, yep, Looks good. Go for it. Um, and then the publication process took another four or five months. Yeah. So it, it was quite a long process. Yeah. Well, that that's quite a journey to write a book. I mean, I've listened to, I've talked, you know, talked with authors, listened to them talk about writing, um, and it's just such a, it's such a commitment. I mean, it's dedication. It is so much time and energy by yourself, just putting it into this project. And so um, congratulations. That's very cool to have a book. And um, The easy part for me, though, is I didn't have to go out and do a bunch of research. Yeah. A, a lot of people that write books, they spend years researching the right. topic, and then they finally get around to writing it. But yeah. this is all from my experience. So yeah. no research needed. Yeah. <laughs> very cool. And how is the book done, and how have you been able to, um, you know, promote it and stuff like that? Well, I'm finding that the selling the book is a lot harder than mm-hmm. writing it, believe it or not. Yeah, after all I've told you about how hard it was to write it, um, there's a billion books. I don't know the exact number, but 
something like that. Something like that <laughs> on, on Amazon. You know, mm-hmm. how does somebody find your book? Right. Uh, if they're not specifically looking for my name or the name of the book. Yeah. Even on search results, because I, I did a search for Camino de Santiago. It was like on page 20 of the search results, you know. So how does people find it? Right. Um, the only way I've been able to sell it so far is through book signings, or I do a lot of presentations and then sign the book, or I just mention it to people that I meet and talk them into buying it. Um, so I'm not making any money on it. And matter of fact, I probably have got another $3,000 to make back just to break even because yeah. I, I had to pay for all the publishing part right. of it. It wasn't like a book company signed me up and took a risk with me. It was, okay, you give us these thousands of dollars and we'll get the book published for you. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and I'm not broke even yet. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay. Nice. Um, okay. And then when did your, when did you actually finish writing? Like when was the book published? What year was that? I think it was the, I'm going to look. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 2018. Okay. So it was the end of 2018. Very cool. Um, all right. And then um, since then, since the launch of the book and everything, what have you kind of been up to? Well, I have gone to a lot of, uh, like, farmers markets and craft shows, <laughs> art shows, trying to sell it. I've scheduled presentations. Um, but... I just keep going with my volunteer stuff, mm-hmm. uh, his pantry at Camino Chapel, uh, the admissions liaison officer for the Air Force Academy. Um, for three, well, that was before the book. The three years before the book, uh, I worked as a service officer at the American Legion in Stanwood, helping veterans apply for the disability yeah. and other VA benefits. Um, I actually stopped that, so I'd have time to write the book. There were yeah. other reasons to stop it, and if you buy the book, you can find out why. <laughs> but um, uh, and now, right now, I'm spending some time working with the U.S. Census and going door to door around Camino <laughs> Island. So some people are probably not too happy with me right now. Um, others are very happy to see me. It's kind mm-hmm. of been an, a mixed boat there. Um, <laughs> and I just got hired uh, another temporary. In- intermittent job, they call it, to give the ASVAB testing at the high schools okay. in the area. So that that's the aptitude test yep. that the military sponsors, but people take it whether they want to go in the military or not to find out what where their aptitude is and what kind of a career they might want to follow. Right. And through that, some of them may end up in the military. But um, it it is for anybody, whether they want to go to the military or not, to figure out where their talents and desires lie and what kind of career then they might want to start thinking about. So I'm going to start this year uh, giving those tests in the local, at the local high school. So now I'll be in the high schools for two reasons. (laughs) Yeah. Very cool. Oh, and oh, can't forget that every Wednesday I hike. Okay. So I'm in a hiking group group called the Skagit Audubon Hikers, and 
even though we're connected with the Audubon people, we don't do any bird watching. We just hike. <laughs> though if we see an eagle, we usually stop and take a picture. Yes. Uh, but that's not our purpose. But uh, anyway, I've owned my 3,000-mile patch with that group. Nice. And my mom has got her 4,000-mile patch. Wow. So I don't think I'll ever catch up with her. Wow. Very um, cool. But um, we do that every Wednesday. Nice. So I, I keep pretty busy. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, I like to end every podcast with some rapid fire questions. The first one is, do you have a lesser known or favorite location on Camino Island that you like to hang out? Um, I just like to walk. I wouldn't say the lesser known, but I like to take my dog and go on all the trails that we have here. Yeah. You know, whether it's Cama Beach, Camino Island State Park. Uh, I start on Ivy Road and Dry Lake and go down to Cranberry Lake and over to Camera Beach. Uh, Bonham Point is a new trail that I love. Yesterday, my mom and I were out on the Elger Bay Trail over by the elementary school there, and we did the Ridgeline hike um, off of Cantu Road. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess that's one of the things I like to do here on the island is just hiking. I guess it's not little known, but that's what I like to do. Yeah. <laughs> Nice. Pretend you have a friend coming from out of town. What would their first day look like here? Uh, I'd probably take them on a hike here or hang out at my house. Like I said, I've got a, a log cabin, a really neat backyard with an outdoor kitchen type thing, and it's a great place to hang out. Um, and then after I know what level they're at on hiking, we might go up, especially if it's in the summer, into the Cascades. Yeah. Do some hiking around Mount Baker or out Highway 20. Yep. Yep. Oh, Mountain a, Loop Highway has some great hikes on it, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a favorite hike uh, up Highway 20 that you like to go? I get them mixed up where they are. Um, I think most of my favorite hikes are actually off of the Mount Baker Highway. Okay. Uh, so it would be... Um, man, come on. <laughs> Skyline Divide. Okay. Excelsior. Um um, well, Chain Lakes is beautiful. I've got a beautiful picture from that. Though my feet are getting worse, and that's really rocky. So last year when we did Chain Lakes, it was kind of difficult for me and my feet. Um, so I don't know if I'll do that one again. But Ptomagon Pass is really cool. Okay. Uh, and just a few weeks ago, we went to Cascade Pass, and that's always beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. That one is out Highway 20. Okay. So nice. that, that would be a good one for out Highway cool. 20. All right. Who's an interesting or fascinating person in this community that I should interview next? I'm going to pick another person from his veterans ministry. Okay. Our actual leader, um, Keith Yarder. He's also retired military. He started out uh, in the Air Force and then switched over to the Army and, and retired um, as a... Um, it is an E-9, you know, the highest rank you can get on the enlisted side. And then he worked um, he worked uh, at the senior center in Stanwood for many years. He worked out at Warm Beach. He was in charge of the uh, Lights of Christmas for many years. Yeah, I think that's where I met him. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, he's just done so much, but one for his country, but also for the community in the Stanwood Camino community. It's just... He's amazing. Yeah, very cool. 
I haven't told him I was going to tell you that. That's fine. I, I know who he is. He gives me a hard time. I can give him a hard time. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Lastly, if you could have a message on a billboard on Kamano Island, right as you're driving on the island, what would that say? Hmm. Well, you know, something that I put on my signature on my email a lot, kind of automatically goes there, is you're not a failure until you're satisfied with being one. Yeah. How about that? That's good. I like it. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm glad you were here. And if you want to buy a copy of my book, uh, it's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, christianbooks.com. Uh, because, you know, we didn't mention it here, but um, part of... Part of the book is also my Christian journey, my okay. testimony, and it kind of weaves through the whole thing. So, yeah. uh, so it is on ChristianBooks.com too. So, Very cool. Um, and I'll put a link to it uh, to the Amazon uh, in the podcast notes as well, okay. so you can check it out there. And I'm working with a company right now to build a website. So okay. I have my own website right now. I don't, but you can just you know Google it or go to Amazon and do a search. Yeah. With no problem. Um, or maybe after this COVID settles down, I'll be able to do another presentation and book signing event in the local area. Yeah. Very cool. All right. And Islanders, I will talk to you on the next one. Well, a big thank you to Colonel Tracy Meck for joining me on the podcast today. And thank you for listening. If you haven't already, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps us be found by other Islanders like yourself. And for more information on this episode, you can go to kamenocommons.com slash EP62. That's commandocommons.com slash EP62. Thanks for listening and see you next time.